All right. We'll try to balance glasses and the wires and get rid of the dang mask. I got a call several months ago asking if I would come to the gathering and talk to you about the topic of the year, courage. Over the years, I have very much enjoyed teaching or speaking, but since retiring, that's something that actually I miss. I don't miss the preparation because I can drive myself crazy getting the preparation together. But I, um, I really, my heart is that I want to spend my life encouraging people on the journey of following Christ with their whole hearts. And so tonight, and so I agreed, okay, I'll come. And I got a choice of some months, and I chose February because it comes before Lent. Uh, Lent is an important part of my life, and that starts, actually, your next meeting is on Ash Wednesday. Um, and, but these days, I don't do much formal speaking like tonight. I do what, I do spiritual directing which is coaching, mentoring, guiding, counseling people who are serious about following Jesus. And um, I um, like to teach where there's interaction, not me here and you out there. So I'm going to try to squish that around a little bit. Tonight, I'm not just going to stand here and talk at you. Uh, I will do talking, but I'm also going to ask you to do some things with paper and pencil. Sometimes I'm going to ask you to sit back and think or make a picture in your head. And so um, uh, I'm going to be uh, using uh, some poetry. I'll use a written prayer. And I'll be sharing some tools that I have found helpful as I follow Jesus and try to let him be the ruler of my life. So the, th the theme is courage, and I was asked to narrow it down, and I've narrowed it down to courage to let go of things I've grasped tightly and learn to put them in God's hands. How do I find that courage? So I said to myself as I got ready for tonight, what do you know of courage? Well, I mean, I, I don't have this great story in my life that took amazing courage to overcome these great odds. I haven't got any story like that. I just don't have it. So I thought about what do I know about courage? Well, I have a cup that I put coffee in, and it says courage on one side, and the other side says courage doesn't always roar. Sometimes courage is the quiet voice at the end of the day saying, I will try again tomorrow. Not too bad. Then I looked up the dictionary. The dictionary says courage is the ability to do something difficult even when there's risk. And it also says that courage is mental or moral strength to venture, persevere, and withstand danger, fear, or difficulty. 
that's what we're talking about when we're talking about courage. Now, let me skip around here and let you, so, you, so you can follow me. Tonight, I'm not really going to be a speaker. I'm going to talk with you. I think I don't know how to do speaker stuff anymore. But I'll be sharing with you some ways that God's opened my eyes to help me see myself and to get to know his goodness. And as I've got to know his goodness, I find that I have courage to do what I'm called to do. And I would really encourage you to do what, as having been a, in the counseling profession for many years, I find that we, us people, don't know ourselves very well. And I really encourage you to ask God to help you know yourself. Knowing myself has probably, or learning to know myself is one of the most important parts of my life. But tonight, I want to share with you three incidents from my life. If you have been with me or been in the ministries that I was involved in here at Sam Alliance, you inevitably have heard at least one of these. But I'm going to line them all up tonight. In order, I only have one life, so I can only talk from my life. So sorry if you've heard my stories before. One of my incidents is 35 years ago. One is 20 years ago. And one is last year. All of the situations have encouraged me to take courage and keep my eyes open for how God continues to form me. But a middle-of-the-night experience, probably 35 years ago, showed me that courage was simply not a trait that I had. What I, be what I began to learn that night truly continues to change the trajectory of my life. I still can see that night almost like it's on a screen. My oldest son was adopted. We adopted him when he was eight months old after having been married for six years and unable to get the stork to stop with a bundle at our house. Oh yeah, we'd been, to the, we'd been to the medical world to try to figure out why with the stork wouldn't stop. And all the doctors could say is, you guys, sometimes we can't figure you people out because we have looked at you and the, the storks like stopping at houses like yours. The problem is we usually have that we get the stork stopping there too often and you come in here and say, can you turn off the machine? We've got too many kids and they keep coming. Well, we couldn't get the machine going. And so after, after six years of being married, we adopted him. He was eight, he was eight months old. In fact, 21 months later, his sister joined him. And his sister was born to us. And a brother joined us a few years later. But we had a very definite sense that adopting this child was God's direction for us. We had visions that having climbed the heartbreaking hill of infertility, and of adopting our son, we were now on a roll. 
and we were just going to stay there. We had had to climb that hill, now we'd got to the top, and we were just going to go for it. What we didn't take into account was like everyone else on this planet, our son had to figure out where he belonged, what he could contribute, and where he would find security and worth. We didn't take into account that there was a story behind him being eight months old when he was adopted. We simply blew past that. Our son Chris was bright and very good looking. And he found a world of acceptance and belonging and leadership in the world of alcohol and drugs. Although I naively didn't grasp at all what that meant. On one particular afternoon in his middle teens, I found myself in the Polk County Courthouse, learning that my son's crowd of friends took things, that is, stole things, from unlocked cars on the street in order to sell them and support their drug and alcohol habits. And he was part of the group. He hadn't actually stolen anything, but he was with the group, and thus he was indicted. To make a longer story short, he was made a ward of the court, and assigned a probation officer to whom he would report regularly. The judge said he would not be put into foster care because they had studied our home. And our home, he looked at my son and he said, your home is a good home for boys like you. I want you to remember that, son. And I felt so proud that the judge said that. The court, the court session ended with my son standing in front of the judge and hearing the judge say he hoped this would be a wake-up call and that Chris would change friends. And he said, and son, I hope you will never, ever show up in this room again. And he took his gavel and banged it down. We got out of there. And we went to Dairy Queen to celebrate and talk. Chris and his friends seemed to understand that they needed to change their ways. We went home, and that night my husband and I fell asleep and slept sounder than we'd probably slept in some time because we had seen storm clouds gathering. And that night we dared to hope that the clouds would be blown away. But at 2 o'clock in the morning, the phone next to my bed rang. And I learned that my son had been arrested as he sat in the car waiting for his friends who were stealing from other cars. Somehow, I managed to get in my car and drive down to the juvenile detention hall was led to his room, a tiny room with a solid door with a tiny hole that you could see who was on the other side. He came out and his eyes glanced past mine. We went to the car. There were no words, what could I say? We got home and he went straight to his room, fell asleep in minutes. I went to the living room. Crawling into bed was pointless. I sat down and I sobbed. Those dark clouds that we had sensed were following us. 
and I had hoped were gone. We're in fact delivering a life-threatening hurricane, and I was at its mercy. My son was officially a juvenile delinquent and a ward of Polk County, Oregon. I didn't know what to do. I reached for my Bible, and I opened it where the marker was so that if it had been morning, that's where I would have read. And I opened it up, and I mean, I didn't have tears on my face. I was sobbing, and I read. The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the stronghold of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? I like to read scripture and then sit back and say, what did that say? And that's what I did that middle of the night. The Lord, the writer, he is not afraid. He's not fearful. The Lord is his light and his salvation. The Lord's the stronghold of his life. And I said, you know, that's not true for me. I'm scared to death. But my children are the center of my life. I have them right here. And I've got a hold of them tight. That night... I purposefully began to do something. I noticed, as I said earlier, people don't necessarily do well, know themselves. I began to admit reality. I came to see that I was far more concerned about the kingdom of my life than the kingdom of God. Seeing the truth began with seeing that I had the wrong thing at the center of my life. My children were at the center. If they did well, I did well. If they did poorly, I couldn't sleep. The writer had an unchanging God as the stronghold of his life. I had children, and they're changing constantly. And when what's at the center of our lives has no ability to consistently hold you, given enough time, it will crumble, and it will leave you in a pile. Guaranteed. I had to somehow, I figured out, change that. I had to let go of having my children be the center, but neither did I know how to do that. Nor did I have the courage to let go of them because there was too much risk involved. It seemed that to let go would mean I didn't care or that it didn't matter or that I'd given up. It seemed that to let go of trying to control Chris's choices in his life would mean that I would lose him to the world of alcohol and drugs, and that, that world might eat him alive. Oh, yeah, I was fearful and afraid. Yet I wanted to be like the writer of the psalm, without fear and unafraid. I didn't know what to do. All it seemed I could do was admit that I was powerless to change what I desperately wanted to change and what I believed needed to change. And I knew I could shamefully admit that the more I connived and manipulated and worked 
to make changes, the more unmanageable the situation got. It's kind of like a ball of yarn that my cat got to, totally knotted up and with no chance that we could ever get this undone and make it usable. So that's what I did that night with tears and sobs in my living room. I admitted the truth of where I was. I was powerless to change my desire to control my son's choices. And I was manipulative, trying to get him to change. Now, although I didn't know it at that time, I was actually doing step one of the 12 steps. The 12 steps that had been written back in the 1930s by a stockbroker and a doctor who had overcome late stages of alcoholism and were attempting to explain to their pastor step by step what they had done that changed their lives so drastically to become people who were again useful in society. So I want to stop at this point. I want to ask you a question. I'm going to ask us just to sit quietly. I'm going to ask you a couple questions. This is not to share at your table. This is for you to think about. What in your life, maybe big and dramatic, kind of like a great big thing, like a kid in the courtroom like mine, or small and tiny, but eating away at a corner in your life, can you admit is beyond your ability and power to change? That's all. Think about it. What in your life that you can see you need to change? Have you not displayed the power to change? What's the evidence that the more you try to exert power you don't have, the messier things seem to get. Just want you to sit. You can close your eyes. I'm going to give you a couple minutes. I want you to think. What is it that you have your hands around that you don't know how to Okay, let's get back to Psalm 27. I read you the first verse where he says he's not afraid and he's not fearful. And he tells you what's at the center of his life. Then he says some very interesting things. He says, when evil men advance against me to devour my flesh, it's kind of gross. When my enemies and my foes attack me, they will stumble and fail. 
Though an army besiege me, my heart will not fear. Though war break out against me, even then will I be confident. The writer says there's a fair amount coming at him. He describes it as evil men. He talks about enemies. He talks about it, an army. And at the end, he says, even if war breaks out against me, even then, I'll be confident. How does he do it? Now, that's courage. He knows how to stand up to that without shaking to death. That's what he does. Then it goes on to say, one thing I ask of the Lord, this is what I seek. And as I read that, I went, oh, this is really good because I just have one thing too. Only have one thing to ask of God, and that is that Chris could be free of this and be the man, the young man that God created him to be. Oh, I'm so excited. I'm just like the psalmist. And then he writes, One thing I ask, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and seek him in his temple. And I went, what? One thing you ask with all this garbage going on and you want to sit and dwell in the church and gaze on the beauty of the stained glass windows? What is going on? And I went off on a rage that I hope there's not an eternal video someplace <laughs> of what I did in my living room. That was just about the dumbest thing that I thought anybody could write. <laughs> but I got that down, and I said, okay, I like the first. Let's try it and see if it changes any. And then it says, oh, yes, this is poetry, so you got to learn to read it a little bit different. Verse 5. Why does he have this one thing that he wants to look at God? For in the day of trouble, he will keep me safe. He will hide me. He will set me high upon a rock. Then my head will be exalted above the enemies who surround me. Oh, he had it straight. He knew that the one thing he needed was to know God. He needed to know God because in the day of trouble, there was a place of refuge. Tonight, before we go on, I want to read to you Something else I've learned that can be very helpful in my life is to find poetry that I like. A poet that speaks, sometimes I can't figure out what poets are saying, but if I can find a poem that I understand, it helps me look at life from a different direction. Would you listen to this beautiful, these beautiful words that come from a, very, a book that's just out, just out um, within the last six weeks, 
pandemic prayers and poetry. Just listen. Our world is a whirl of what ifs right now. Worst case scenarios, wild worries, bewildering unknowns. Scary scenes of pending gloom loom heavy over our hearts. What if? What if? What if? And we can hear that drum all day and fill in those blanks any number of ways, but no matter how our imaginations get carried away, there's no possible way that God will not still be on the throne at the end of the day. So what if we traded our what ifs for even ifs and even if nots? Like the three Jewish boys standing smack in the middle of a fiery furnace who declared that God could indeed rescue them easily. But even if not, still they would trust him. Still they were healed. Still they would not bow to another. Even if, and even if not, that pretty much covers it. Even if you get that phone call, even if you hear that word from the doctor, even if that never changes, even if God leads you to that place, even if you get, even if you lose, even if you don't, even if you do, even then, you are secure. Even then you can have joy. Even then his hand will guide you. Even then he will never leave you. What if we exchange our what if worries for even if stakes in the ground? Even if it is shaky quicksand. Even still. Even so. Even there. Even that, period. We will trust him. We will follow him. We will hold on to him with everything we've got. Because where else would we go? You alone have the words of life. A few years after this incident, I was introduced to the 12 steps at a huge secular professional counseling conference I attended in Phoenix. That was another life changer, but there's no time to give you about, tell you all about that. But it began to truly work the steps. And in 1991, had the amazing and most unexpected privilege of joining the pastoral team here at Salem Alliance leading an amazing team of volunteer leaders and supporting the recovery journey of many people over 23 years. If you want to know what those 12 steps are every Monday night, <laughs> talk to Jennifer, talk to me. We're going through the 12 steps. They're open groups. Anybody can join anytime. But about 20 years ago, as my youngest son had finished undergrad work at Oregon State University, was applying for grad school at various schools across the country, I was attempting to work the 11th step. The 11th step, oh, 
this would be good. The first 10 had been good. I would get to the 11th. And as I was working that 11th step, my son Jeremy had applied to the University of Virginia's computer engineering program. It was, and still is, a very prestigious school and accepts only a small portion of the applicants. I wanted him to get into UVA. What parent wouldn't want that? And I wanted him to get a great financial package because it was expensive. <laughs> 20 years ago, it was $40,000. And so I took the words of Jesus that Jesus spoke on that Sermon on the Mount, and I reminded him, you said to ask, so I'm asking. You said fathers don't give stones when their children ask for bread. I want bread. Don't give me a stone. Oh, I had my request all backed up because I had my hands wrapped around that future for Jeremy. I had the right to ask. Jesus said I could. And he expected my good father to come through, right? Then I read over the 11th step. And it says, asking only for the knowledge of God's will and the ability to carry that out. What? Oh, that's the 11th step. It's not scripture. I think they're off on that one. Why am I having trouble asking only for God's will? Maybe he doesn't have all the information I have. I need to explain why this is so important. But as I read over the sermon, and read what today we call the Lord's Prayer, interesting that we say Lord. You know what a Lord is? It's the guy at the top of the pile. The Lord. I saw that the instructions from Jesus were to pray that God's will would be done on earth just as it always happens in heaven. And I had a problem allowing it. I had my hands deeply wound around my son's admission to UVA. Oh, I wanted him to have the best. I didn't want him disappointed. And yes, I wanted to be a proud mama that this is where my son goes. And so... We don't have all night to be here. I'll spare you the details. But I finally got myself to a point where I could say, okay, I admit I have no power to control this. And I believe that God not only has power and control, but he's good. And that he will not withhold his goodness. And so I willingly took my hands off. And peace filled my heart. And I said, Lord... Not my will, yours. And Jeremy was accepted. And he got a totally free ride. Tuition, housing, salary. And I was ecstatic. And I was learning. But I had more to learn. Two years later, from UVA, Jeremy called one evening to say, that the school was a good place. I mean, we'd obviously been talking. We knew what was going on. And, and had promised him that when he graduated, 
20 years ago. He would start with a salary with at least six numbers in it. And I said, really? 100,000 plus. Yep, he says, that's what they tell me. But he said, and I said, oh, Jeremy, that's just awesome. And then he said, but mom, I don't think I can do this. I can do the work. I can get A's. But I don't want to be behind a computer. I'll go crazy. What do you think of my dropping out? Dropping out of a $40,000 free ride? I sat down with myself. I had let go two years earlier. I could do it again. Once, I need, once again, I needed to confirm what I was slowly learning. There's two kingdoms. There's God's and there's mine. The name of the kingdom tells you who is the Lord or the king of the realm. And Jeremy dropped out. And that's another story. I'd like us to stop for a minute to pray together and listen to the prayer that Jesus taught us to pray. Would you pray it with me? Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. <coughs> Whoops, where are we? Uh, into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. I was learning, oh, there's two kingdoms. Where do I want to live? How do I let go? And as I wind up my time with you, I want to share an incident from the past year. 2020 was winding up. My oldest granddaughter made me into a great-grandma that December. Because her father, my oldest adopted son, was adopted, none of us had any medical records about him or the hospital where she would deliver her son, Kai. Uh, and that hospital required certain genetic information before they would allow a child to be delivered there. So she got into the world of DNA. And so just about one year ago, after Kai, the hospital found what they had, but information had gone out to various places, my granddaughter, who lives in Colorado, got a text telling her that the sender said, I'm a direct relative of yours. I am either this, 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 or your grandfather. She called me totally freaking out. For years and years, I had tried to find my son's birth parents, 
And he had filled out every form the state of Oregon had had trying to find them himself. But nothing, nothing at all. In Oregon, unless the birth parents file a legal form that frees the state to give the names, it stays confidential forever. I said to my granddaughter, I don't know, make sure it's not a scam. Ask for some kind of proof. Ask for proof that this is real, that it's not somebody trying to scam you. In less than 15 minutes, she called me back. She said, Grandma, look online. Look online and tell me if you, this is exactly what she said, tell me if you know this person. I quickly got on my computer, and this picture was there. I said, I expected to see the picture of the woman. It was a child. And she said to me, Grandma, do you know that person? And I said, Tavia, that's your father. That's your father younger than I ever held him. Before the day was over, I was on the phone with the woman who had put the picture on. She said to me, I don't know if you're shaking as much as I am, but I'm shaking, but I want to talk to you. And then she said to me, I think that you raised the child that I gave birth to. And I said, yes. She said, do you have any questions? And I said, yes. How did you locate that photo so fast? If somebody asked me for a photo, I could find it. But it would take me at least the afternoon, maybe several days. I was thinking, is this a scam? They got this picture, they're doing this. Oh, I'm so skeptical. And she said to me, oh, I can tell you that easily. That picture's been in my Bible since the day I surrendered him. I've prayed for him almost every day for 50 years. And then she said, ma'am, I really don't want to offend you, but I pray. But ever since I surrendered him, I prayed that he might have Christian parents. Ma'am, I don't want to offend you. It's just what I've prayed. And I said to her, I think I need to tell you a story too. And we shared. I listened, stunned, shocked, overwhelmed. And I stayed in that state of mind for a couple days. That's not usually what I do, but I probably, I, two nights I just couldn't sleep. I just found out a couple of things. First of all, I learned something that had always been true. I just didn't know it. My son's birth mother had been praying for him all along. We had been partners in the kingdom of, of God. We just didn't know it. I didn't need to know. God knew what he was doing. He had it under control.
oh, my job is to let go and trust him, knowing that a good father gives his children bread, not stones. Oh, yes, the house that was built on rock could have rain and floods and wind, but the house built on the rock in the kingdom of God would hold steady. And secondly, I heard Chris's birth mom use a word in a way I didn't understand. She said, I prayed for him ever since I surrendered him. I learned that surrender is a legal term. That's what happens when someone chooses to put a child up for adoption. They surrender him, never to pick him up again. And I realized that's what it means to choose to follow Jesus. To choose to live in the kingdom of God rather than in the kingdom of Jane. To surrender living in my kingdom where I am the queen and the Lord. To let go of my position as the Lord and the ruler. And to put my life in the hands of God. And so I conclude my wandering talk with you this evening as I say, so where do you find courage to let go of the concerns that tear at our hearts, that keep us awake at night? What I have learned and what I recommend to you is admit that you don't have power to change what you want changed and that your efforts are gumming up the gears. Come to believe that a power is, there is a power greater than you, and not only power, but a loving power. Come to know, not just know about. Come to know God. There's lots of tools. Use a Bible, poetry, walks outside, reflective reading, journaling, music, a Bible study, a 12-step group. And then transfer from your tight grip what you are carrying. And as the Psalm 27 ends, be confident of this. You will see the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. Wait for the Lord. Be strong and let your heart take courage. Wait for the Lord. And I want to conclude with us reading together the prayer that's on your tables on the white page. I'd like you to take that and turn it over. Across our country, on the walls of the building across the street, the first four lines you'll find. But we're going to read the prayer in its entirety as we close this evening. I encourage you to look at this prayer and maybe pray it over the next few days and weeks. Let's read this. Pray it together. God, 
Grant me the serenity to accept the things I cannot change, courage to change the things I can, and wisdom to know the difference. Living one day at a time, enjoying one moment at a time, accepting hardships as the pathway to peace, taking, as Jesus did, this sinful world as it is, not as I would have it, trusting that he will make all things right if I surrender to his will, so that I may be reasonably happy in this life and supremely happy with him forever and ever in the next. Amen. I encourage you to take this, pull it out, struggle with it, pray it, ask questions about it. It's the way we find courage to deal with the stuff our hands are wrapped around. Jane, thank you. Thank you for sharing your story and the truths of scripture and your own experience. We appreciate the sharing tonight. And thank you for being here. This wouldn't be an event if you weren't here. So we love seeing you. You are welcome back here next uh, month, March 2nd, same place, same time. Bring a friend and um, yeah, be blessed and uh, go in peace as you go.